Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, and if you want to get ahead, uh, you can open also to Leviticus chapter 13. 2 Kings chapter 5 and Leviticus chapter 13, as we follow the ministry of Elisha, we come to an encounter with a Gentile army commander from Syria. Notice verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 5. It says, Now Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Now it's interesting as we're introduced to Naaman, he is described as a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. And we have to ask the question, why? Well, he was a successful commander, notice in verse 2. Uh, the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back this captive young girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. And even as a Gentile, according to verse 1, his victories came from the Lord. God was with him even in these battles. And on one of those raids, as it says in verse 2, they bring back a girl from Israel that becomes a servant in his home, serving his wife. Now, I don't want you to turn there, but if you're taking notes, you can jot it down because it's a neat little tidbit, a little Bible study tidbit that you'll find in the New Testament. When it comes to the ministry of Elijah, J-A-H, 29 times in the New Testament, Elijah's mentioned. But Elisha is only mentioned one time in the New Testament. It's in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 is that, that great chapter where Jesus comes in. He comes into Capernaum or to Nazareth. Open, he goes into the synagogue, opens up the scroll, declares why he's come. It's right there in Isaiah. And then remember right after that, he begins to teach them. And he talks about God healing this Gentile. He refers to this particular instance in 2 Kings. And that's when they take him to the edge of the hill and they want to throw him over. And you, you can put these together, do some homework, maybe a devotional this week of just taking a stand for saying what's right and taking a stand no matter what it takes that you can go from being esteemed in the synagogue to being taken out to the edge of this high mountaintop, this high cliff to be thrown over to die. And that's found in Luke chapter 24. It's tied together with this section, God healing a Gentile, which was outside the covenant and it just ticked people off and stirred them up. Now back in 2 Kings 5, this in the home of Naaman, with all his status and power, he has everything that you would think you would want outwardly. He's got his career, he's got his victory, he's great, he's honorable in the sight of his master. He, it, you would say if, it, in our context that this is the guy living the American dream, man. He's got it all. Everything that a man could want. 
esteem, power, money, everything that a man can want, and a very serious disease. He's very sick. This disease would inevitably lead to death, a painful, long, slow death. This mighty man, notice, as it says, as you walk through in that land of Naaman, I mean, in the home of Naaman, he was a mighty warrior of valor there at the end of verse one, a mighty man of valor. And then there's that word, but. Because there's always a but, isn't there? There's always a but. No matter how good things seem to be, no matter how much progress a person makes, we all face troubles. There's always a turning point in our lives. It could be as serious as leprosy. It could be serious in other areas, but there's always a but because we've all been touched by sin. The world and its fallen nature touches all of our lives. There's always a but. For some of you, there's many of them. Where you turn to the left, there's one. Then you turn to the right, there's one. Then you look up and there's another. And you look down and to the left, I mean, all over there is this battle, this pressure, this difficulty, this circumstance, this trial, this tribulation. For Naaman, the but is leprosy. It's a skin disease. It's a very serious disease. And in the Bible, it's often used as a picture and a type of sin. And I want to show that to you, for those of you that haven't seen it before, come back with me in Leviticus chapter 13, and let's see how leprosy in its progressive, destructive nature is a great picture and type of sin in the Bible. And I pray that we take it to heart and that we take heed and that even tonight you might be encouraged that no matter where you're reading in the Bible, God has a word for you. For those of you that have skipped Leviticus, And for those of you that skip over the hard parts or what you perceive to be the hard parts of the Bible, God has a word for you. He doesn't want you to skip over things. Every word of God is powerful and true. Every word of God has been put there for a reason. And you wonder why would in Leviticus 13 God spend so much time on this serious disease known as leprosy? Well, to show us a type of sin how sin is so dangerous and destructive. And so there's a few things I want, to write, I want to share with you. Number one, sin, like leprosy, is often deeper than the skin. Notice in verse two of Leviticus 13, when a man has on the skin of his body a swelling, a scab, a bright spot, and it becomes on the skin of his body like a leprous sore, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest and one of his sons of the priests, And the priest shall look at the sore on the skin of the body. And if the hair on the sore is turned white and the sore appears to be deeper than the skin of the body, it's a leprous sore. And the priest shall look at him and pronounce him unclean. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And friends, sin is not a surface problem. It is a deep-seated issue in our lives especially ongoing sin, especially sin that we've been deceitful about, especially sin that we have allowed to take root and has become a bondage in our life, it's not just something surface. It needs to be taken seriously. It goes deep into a person, so deep that the Bible teaches that a man must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. Deep. Number two, sin like leprosy spreads rapidly. Notice verse five. The priest shall look at him on the seventh day, and indeed if the sore appears to be as it was, 
and the sore is not spread on the skin, then the priest shall isolate him another seven days. And the priest will look at him again on the seventh day. And if indeed the sore is darkened and the sore is not spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It's only a scab, and he'll wash his clothes and be clean. But if the scab should at all spread over the skin, after he has been seen by the priest for his cleansing, he shall be seen by the priest again and, verse 8, if the priest sees that the scab is indeed spread on the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It's leprosy. Leprosy spreads, sin spreads. Notice verse 53 of, Le- of, of Leviticus 13. Verse 53. But if the priest looks and indeed the plague is not spread in the garment, either in the warp or in the woof, or anything made of leather, then the priest shall command that they wash the thing in which the plague, and he shall isolate it another seven days. The whole thing with leprosy was to watch if the disease spread. Now, today we don't refer to leprosy as leprosy. We refer to it by the doctor that has studied it, Hansen. Today it's known as Hansen disease. And it affects the skin and nerve endings, and as it spread, it produces these ulcerous nodules on the skin. One begins as one sore, gradually spreading and turns the whole body into corruption and ugliness. Hansen's disease is infectious, it's contagious, and it's dangerous, just like sin. The Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 15, when the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it's full grown, or another way of saying that, sin when it has fully spread, what does it do? But it, gives birth, it brings forth death. James chapter 1, verse 5. Number three, sin like leprosy defiles a person. You'll see that in chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. It defiles a person. Sin so quickly turns a person into a morally unclean human to all of us. It may not turn up for a while, but it will. And when it does, great defile. And it defiles the people next to you the people that are close to you. And it can't be hidden. It can't be hidden. The Bible says, be sure that your sin will find you out. It's not God chasing after you because God has full knowledge of our lives. The Bible says that our lives are open and naked before the one who sees us. It's not that God is chasing out to reveal that sin. Your sin itself will will show itself. Your sin in our lives just appears. And there's no such thing as hidden sin. Nothing's hidden before God, and neither could be leprosy. Leprosy could not be hidden. Number four, sin like leprosy isolates a person. Sin isolates a person. Notice in verse 46 of Leviticus 13, he shall be unclean, and all the days he has the sore, he shall be unclean. He is unclean, and he shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Leprosy causes a person to be outside the camp, just like sin does. There are many empty chairs among us in our Bible studies because sin has isolated a person. But it's not just the people that aren't here. It's the people that are here and are isolated because of their sin. The people that will grow show up in a gathering, but each time they show up for a gathering and they don't repent of their sins, their heart gets harder. And so it's possible we'd be sitting in a congregation filled with people. Some are in tune to the Holy Spirit and some hearts are getting harder. Why? Because of sin. It is not going to resolve itself. If you let it go, it's going to cause even more damage. 
Bible speaks of those that are walking in sin like walking dead. A person becomes like a spiritual zombie. Or even as a church where they have a name that they're alive, but inside they're filled with dead man's bones. You can reference Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6 on that. Number five, sin like leprosy, there is, real, there is no real cure through man. They still haven't found a cure for leprosy to this day. Man is unable to cure it. You can delay it, and you can stop it from spreading, but you can't cure it. There is no cure for sin. You might be able in some way to bring some self-help into your life. You might be able to get some therapy to get you through a few things, but there's no cure apart from Jesus Christ and the blood that was shed for you. That's the only cure for sin. Everything else is just a, a few delays of the inevitable. Only God, through the power of the cross, can solve the sin issue in a person's life once and for all. There is no other alternative. And as we come back to this young, this man, this leader, Naaman, in 2 Kings, he's in a bad place, in a desperate place. He has everything that you would think a person would want, but he's got a deadly disease that isn't going to stop, that, that will defile him. And, and, it, and left alone and untreated, uncared for, and not healed in some supernatural way, he's going to die a slow, painful death. And notice it's this girl that is taken captive, brought back into his home, that is the one speaking words of faith. Hey, he should be with the prophet in Samaria. There, there's help and there's hope. It's amazing for this little girl because what would happen, what you could say happened is that she was kidnapped and taken as spoils of war, taken out of her land. And here she is, she had the choice to be upset. She could be mad. She could choose to be bitter her whole life and angry and serve with a grudge and a chip on her shoulder. But, but in the home that she had, in demonstrating her faith in the living God, no matter what has happened to her, no matter how she's been treated, she speaks words of faith to the very leader of the army that took her captive to begin with. I mean, that's some tremendous, that's a tremendous presence of God in a person's life. And instead of choosing to be bitter and upset, she chose to be a blessing. She chose to serve others. And she speaks up, it says, she tells her mistress, hey, it would be better if she, he was with the prophet in Samaria, notice, for he would heal him of his leprosy. What great faith. So Naaman, he goes in and tells his boss, notice verse five. So the king of Syria said, mark these words, go now. Mark those words, we'll get back to them in a moment. This king of Syria said, go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he departed and took with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing, all very valuable things. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel and said, now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy, verse seven. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. Now, when the king of Syria hears hope for his servant, the possibility of healing, his response is awesome. It's those words I ask you to mark, go now. And the way it's written, it seems immediate. 
He hears hope for his servant, the valuable man that has served him. And, and he says, there, there, if I just go to Israel, if I can go to Samaria, there's a guy there that can take care of this whole disease. And I just believe that phrase, go now, or maybe you want to write next to it, yes, is a great phrase to have in ministry. To learn to say yes to God and yes to others that want to step out and serve God in these last days. It's a wonderful attitude to have. This unbelieving king wants to see what God will do. So does the girl. So the girl wants to see what God wants to do. The unbelieving king wants to see what God wants to do. And then, of course, we read the king of Israel. Oh, this can't be from God. He wants to start a war with me. And, of course, we know how corrupt the kings were. We know what what a corrupt time of leadership there is. But I, I choose to focus on the ones that are filled with faith. I just learned over the years that, that to be surrounded by people that don't have a lot of faith really bums me out. I don't work well in that environment. I work so much better in my life and how God has made me to be surrounded by people of faith. Uh, not, not those that just want to complain and those that just want to find everything wrong and those that just, just want to, to throw a wet blanket on everything. That, that doesn't help me personally very much. But the people that want to step out on faith, the people that want to try something, the people who have some crazy idea, I'm just like, yeah, why don't we, let's, let's do it. Let's try. And, and let's see what God might want to do. And sometimes it takes a few times to move me, but that faith moves me and it inspires me. And it's something that, that, I, that we've learned through the ministry here uh, in this fellowship family of Calvary Chapel. Like God has given us such a great heritage of so many of the men that have come before us. And, and the particular stream of ministry that this church is born from, it starts obviously with God through the power of the Holy Spirit, apprehending a man by the name of Chuck Smith. And then Chuck Smith teaching my pastor, Jeff Johnson. And I'm walking into that, that ministry and God's teaching me for many years through my pastor, Jeff. And then moving here, the stream of ministry is just very strong of faith and stepping out in faith. And something Pastor Chuck wrote in his memoir uh, that, that was just so encouraging. Uh, they, they read, they, he got together and wrote a book just before uh, he passed away, just a few years before he passed away. And in the last chapter, it might be the last two chapters, he just starts giving these exhortations, things that he's learned in the ministry, things that if he had a chance to do it over again, he would do it over again. Let me read to you what he writes as he encourages us that oversee ministry, that are leaders spiritually, and I quote, I never considered launching an international ministry and wouldn't have known where to begin even if the thought had occurred to me. This is coming from a man through his leadership over 16, 1700 churches were birthed, even through some church splits along the way, other movements were birthed and international ministries are still ongoing to this day. So, so he's talking about, you know, I never wanted to launch an international ministry. As a matter of fact, if you talk to Pastor Chuck, especially toward the latter years in ministry, as the movement, family movement of Calvary Chapel got larger and more ministries were happening and all, if you asked him, and, and he was interviewed a few times and said this, he would say, I never wanted to start a movement. I just wanted to pastor a little church in Costa Mesa and I was expecting to pastor a church of 300 people. That would have been fine with me. I would have been very satisfied with a small fellowship family. And even at the end of his church of multi-thousands of people in Costa Mesa, he would say, you know, I don't want to oversee a movement. I just want to pastor a church. 
That was his heart. That's where he was. So they're talking to him about this vast movement. And you say, well, Pastor Chuck, tell us about it. And he says, I never wanted that. He says, I, he says and I quote, I never recruited anyone for missions work. Never outlined a plan for overseas church planting. Never developed a philosophy for international ministry. And here's the key that I want to share with you. If I did anything at all to encourage the people who have gone out from Calvary Chapel into all the world to preach the gospel, it was this. I never told them, no, you can't take the gospel to other cultures. You're not qualified or funded, so it won't work. As he looks back on his ministry, he says, you know, I just never told people no. I said, go do it, as unto the Lord. God bless you. God bless you. May the Lord bless you and encourage you. And, and even as that was handed down to us and my pastor, I remember it like it was yesterday making the appointment with Pastor Jeff, going into his office super nervous because I hadn't met with him many times uh, during the time that I was there. So it was a third or second or third time we met and, and I was so filled with faith and so excited. Pastor, you know, I think it's time for us to go out and plant a church. And he's, oh, really, where are you gonna go? And I said, we said, we're gonna go to Colorado. He goes, oh man, that's far. And I said, yeah, I think that's what the Lord's doing. And, and, uh, and, and we just wanted to get your blessing. You know, I just wanted to get your blessing. I, you're my pastor. And he says, well, God bless you guys. Tell me how it goes. And I've had the privilege now for 18 years to tell him how it's gone, what the Lord has done. And you know, he could have said no. He could have said, you're a knucklehead. Uh, you haven't served for long enough here. You're not even on staff here. I don't really even know you that well. But his heart was in tune with the Lord. And he just said, God bless you. Tell me how it goes when you get there. And every, back then, we would write letters. <laughs> you know, it wasn't an email or anything. It was a letter. I'd write a letter. Say, here's the update this year. This is what God's done. I remember writing them and saying, you know, we baptized seven people. Seven people. Can you imagine? To move to a place. No, you don't know anybody there. And at your first baptism, you baptize seven people. Seven people. That's amazing. It takes us an hour and a half to two hours now, every three months, to baptize how many people want to get baptized in the name of the Lord. And you know, that's a good time, and so are the seven people. And so now we just, hey, God is doing a great work. God's doing a great work there. God's doing a great, but I, I was thinking, I, I just, in my life, but sometimes people get upset about that a little bit because we say, well, God bless you. And you go, well, wait a minute, aren't you gonna help me? Yeah, God bless you. Well, aren't you gonna fund us? Yeah, God bless you. Well, what are you gonna do? We're gonna pray for you. We're gonna be there for you. We're gonna encourage you. We're gonna answer the phone when you call for help and we're gonna watch you trust in God. We're gonna watch you trust in God. And through a variety of ways, we have helped guys over the years and we still help you guys to this day uh, that we do just a, a little bit more than God bless you, but it depends. It depends on what the situation is. It depends on how God is leading. And, and sometimes guys, they get real frustrated about that. They go, wait a minute, what does it, what does it mean to be sent out from your church? Yeah, this is what it means. God bless you. Tell me how it goes when you get there. We're with you all the way. We're gonna do the work here, you do the work there, and let's find out what God wants to do. And I just love that. I, I really never knew, I never knew where that principle came in my life until I was on a question and answer panel at another church, and one of the questions was along these lines, and, and my answer was along the lines of, yeah, you know, I just like to tell people yes. 
I say, well, let's find out how, let's find out what God wants to do. And it's okay if it doesn't work. Let's just step out in faith and let's find out. And, and over the years, I've just learned, I do say no, don't misunderstand me. If I feel like the Lord is wanting me to, to say no or I just can't be a part of that, I will unto the Lord. But most of the time, I just want to say yes. And, and, and then the brother next to me, Pastor Brian Broderson, he was there. He says, yeah, you know, that's what Pastor Chuck used to do. And he's the one, I, he says, I think he wrote it in a book somewhere. And so as soon as I go home from that conference, man, I started pulling out the book and I go, here it is. What a principle. And that's why, by the way, I think leaders should be readers. Now, I'm not just trying to rhyme here. And I didn't make that up. But I want you to remember it. If you really want to be a good leader in the Lord, you need to read. And you need to read a lot from men and women that have come before you. Not only do you need to be a man or a woman of the word, but you also need, depending on where you're serving, you need to read those that have gone before you because you can learn a lot from other people's mistakes. They don't have to be yours. And so there's those leadership. If you want a list of books to read and you want to grow in leadership, email me and I'll respond to that email with a list of books that we use here to develop leaders. You can just send it to pastored at calvaryaurora.org and I'll send you back a link where you can download a list of books to read. And, and here's why. If you're constantly reading and absorbing and picking things up and they become a part of you, you don't have to remember who wrote it. You don't have to remember what book it's in. You just, you, you just absorb the truth and live it out. Because isn't it true, how many of you, how many of you, can quote verses, but you forgot the address. How many? Exactly. Look around. Keep your hands up. Look around. There's a lot of forgetful people here. And everyone on the internet too. They're like, me too. Yes, I know. But it's in you, isn't it? Even if you don't know the address, does it still have the same power? Of course it does. It's God's word. And so I think if you want to grow in leadership, you've got to read. Well, I don't read. It's going to take you a long time to develop as a leader. You go, Ed, how can you say that? Because God, his primary way of communicating with us is a book that he wrote. It's a book that he wrote. And he wants you to read. Well, Ed, you know, I have a hard time reading. I'm dyslexic. Well, praise God that they make audiobooks. And you can have somebody read it to you. But let me just say this. Maybe this is a word from the Lord. Stop making excuses and start doing something for the Lord. It's so easy. I don't know about this and my personality here, where I came from, and they hurt me. And they, okay, okay. Submit it to the Lord in the throne room of grace and let's run our race because the Holy Spirit wants to use you. Fractured past, hurt past, grief, sorrow, difficulty. He wants to use you. And for most of us, we're closer to the Lord than we are to our birth. Anybody get that? That was a nice way of saying there's a lot of old people listening to me right now. <laughs> or like Peter would say, the coming of the Lord is nearer than it's ever been before. And it's time to be busy with the things of the Lord, with the life that he's given us. And so he says, go now. I love that. Why is it that we need to learn such a lesson from a Gentile king? Learn it nonetheless. Go now. Let's do it. Let's say yes to the things of God. Let's reach the world for Christ. So notice in verse eight. And so it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me and he shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. And Naaman went with his horses and chariot and he stood at the door of the house of Elijah. So while the king only sees war, Elisha sees opportunity spiritually. It seems that he's always on the lookout for the Lord to work. 
So much so that he does twice the amount of miracles as Elijah. Now, of course, we know that Elisha received a double portion. But could it be that he was always on the lookout for ministry? Could it be that that he was always looking for an opportunity even when he hears this? It's not war. This is not a declaration of war, man. The guy needs to be healed. That's what it is. And God is always working. He's always working. It's not just church times. It's not just prayer times. It's not just Devo times. God is always at work. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, my father's been working until now, and I've been working. And he's still working. He's still working. It's just for us. What's left is just for us to join him. We don't create anything. We don't make anything happen. That's just fleshly. We discover what God's doing, and we join him. We join him. God is there when the woman that's crying for the family that's struggling with the boss that's succeeding, God is at work. By faith, as we step into people's lives with the hope of the gospel, Elisha steps in and says, let let him come to me. Don't start a war, man. The guy just needs to be healed. Notice in verse 9, Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot and stood at the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, uh, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he returned and went away in a rage. This is a great case of unmet expectations. Go dip in the dirty Jordan. Well, wait a minute. Like, I thought he was just going to come on and go abacadabra, and I'm, I'm already done. Couldn't I just go to the rivers in Damascus? What, go to the, and, and notice, it, this isn't, there's two things at play here. He's in a rage, and he's prideful. And they often go together. He's prideful. As they meet, he becomes furious. And gives his own alternative. I mean, picture this, guys. A man with an incurable disease has traveled a long distance in great hope. Only, and to meet the, he, find, he met the guy. And the guy gives him the answer. And, and, and a war is averted. I mean, this would make a great movie. Like, everything is working. And he finally comes to him only to let his anger get the best of him. And he walks away. Not healed. First of all, number one, be careful with anger. The Bible says be angry and don't sin, but be careful with anger. It'd be better just to stay away from anger. For some of you, just stay away from it completely. Anger can become a foothold and a stronghold and a stranglehold in your life. Secondly, this sounds like a a lot of counseling sessions with our pastors here. Almost identical. Somebody calls or a situation comes up, great crisis hits a home. They're in a mode of I want help, I need help. They come in for a counseling session, get mad at everything that's said, leave in pride and anger, and disconnected from the very help that God gave them to begin with. The story is repeated over and over and over again. And so the situations get worse and worse and worse. And fortunately, Elisha doesn't allow it to end there. He's always pressing in, which is a good thing to press in, to those that are caught up in pride and anger and arrogance. Praise God for the Elishas 
that are going to continue to try and continue to try. Notice verse 13. And the servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? How much more than when he sends to you wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little baby bottom. It doesn't say that, but like a little child. And he was clean. And he returned to the man of God and all of his aides and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Mark that. Just put a star next to it. It'll be the summary of our next time together. So Naaman, verse 17, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of the earth, and your servant will no longer offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any other gods, little g, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon, and I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. And then verse 19, then he said to him, go in peace, and he departed from him for a short distance. So he comes back and he declares, he gets people that are speaking some truth into him, comes back, declares the work of God, he's healed, exactly as Elisha said it would be, and he offers a great gift, it's refused, And so Naaman says, well, then can I take some Israeli dirt home with me? And remember in that day, in that culture, the pagans believed that gods were localized and that they were in that particular land. So the idea of taking Israeli dirt was like taking the Israeli God with them. It was a foreign concept. He's been touched by the real God, but he's not quite there yet. And so finally Naaman, thinking ahead, tells Elisha as the servant to the king that he's going to go in and, false, and when he goes in to worship the false god Rimon, he hopes God is gracious to him. And when he mentions how he's going to go back home and, and continue in paganism and, and shares that a couple times, what does Elisha say? Does Elisha drop a big theological, you know, seven-volume systematic theology on him and say, no, 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 don't do that. You're a different man now. And and begin to just berate him. And No, what does he do? He tells him to go in peace. And those of you that read ahead or read in this text, you might be thinking, well, why didn't Elijah correct him? Because you probably are more prone to correct. This is how God made you. It doesn't mean it's bad. It's just you're more prone prone to correct. And why didn't he correct his theology? You know, give him a new believer packet and tell him, this is what you do, man. These are the four things. You read your Bible and and you pray and you hang out with other believers. Why didn't he do that? Well, I think Elisha had something in his life that would be good for us to continually remember, maybe even learn. New believers belong to the Lord. Remember that. Jot it down if you're taking notes. New believers belong to the Lord. Who saved that new believer? Say it out loud. God saved that new believer. Did Calvary Chapel save that new believer? Did the pastor in the pulpit save that new believer? Did you laying hands on someone save that new believer? No, the answer is no. God saved that new believer. Therefore, new believers belong to who? They belong to God. So don't get too stressed out about new believers. Sometimes people will ask me and say, well, Ed, what are you going to do to follow up on those people? You don't even ask them to come forward that service. What are you going to do? What do you mean, what am I going to do? They belong to the Lord. If they've been born again, they're going to naturally follow God. Yeah, maybe they go back into the temple of Rimon, and we find out about it, and we go, hey, bro, what's going on? Why are you going back to that? And teaching them the Bible, 
and showing them the truth. But they belong to the Lord. New believers belong to God. So many critics arise who think they know everything and have an answer for everything. And they think they have to correct everything when the Lord would just have us to encourage people, just to come alongside of them. Would it be okay to let the servant be a servant? Yeah. Would it be okay to, let, to tell Naaman to watch out for idolatry? Sure. But be spirit-led, church. Be led by the spirit when you're dealing with new believers. They're fragile. They come from a background that, for some of them, it's going to be really hard to break. It's all they've known their whole life. And they're born again, and you think, wow, you know, they should be new believers. They should be just like me next week. But do we really want to be just like you? Any week of the, any day of the week? Like God's still working on you too, huh? Amen? Like you're still working through some things. And, and you're like, wait a minute, Ed, isn't, what's the vision of our church? Aren't we to win people to Christ? Aren't we to disciple them? Aren't we to send them out? <laughs> That's our vision. But let me just clarify for you. We don't win anyone to Jesus Christ. And we don't disciple anyone in Jesus Christ. And we don't send anyone for Jesus Christ. And you're like, Ed, what are you talking about? I just want to make a simple distinction for you, okay? Lest you think it's all your responsibility or unless you think you're the gift that God has given to the world. We neither win, disciple, or send anyone. God does. Through us. Or in some cases, without us. But God does the work. And as I shared, God is at work on the earth today. And don't be so quick to be correcting all the time. Some people, you just need to walk alongside of them. I mean, it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing for me to swallow. I love to give direction, and, and I have that correction in me. That's how God made me. And, and Elisha challenges me in my heart. Because if somebody said, you know, a new believer up here, we're praying for me, I'm going to go back with my pagan idolatry. I'm going to take some dirt back from Aurora, and hopefully God will bless me in the pagan temple of Rimon. I'm pretty sure I'm probably going to say, bro, you sh- probably shouldn't go back into that temple. I, something, I don't know what I'd say. I hope I'd be kind and nice about it, but I'm pretty sure I'd say something. But, you know, Elisha says, go in peace. Why? Because he trusts his God with Naaman. Because what did he do to get Naaman to come to him anyway? What did he do to arrange this whole scenario? What, what did he do? You know, when you think of this, you, you're here for the first night tonight. God has spoken to your heart. You're going to give your life to Jesus Christ. What did I have to do with that? Nothing. God's working in your life. Well, but Ed, I heard you on the radio. No, no, God did that. Oh, but Ed, you know, I, I, somebody invited me. I know, but God put that on their heart. Like, God is at work drawing you, not man. Man is always the vessel. Sort of like being invited to our resurrection services, right? You give out that card, somebody comes in, they have the card in their back pocket, they get saved, they come up and they go, thank you card for bringing me to Calvary. It wasn't the card. And it wasn't even you. The Holy Spirit was working in that brother or that sister's life. And so leave here with that sense of just Elisha. Go in peace. Follow the Lord. Let's go out to lunch and talk about God. Let's talk about your past. Let's be gracious, church, filled with agape love toward one another. 
Uh, This world could use a lot less criticism and a lot less condemnation and a lot less opinionated attitudes, especially among believers. Let's walk in love. What did Jesus say? And this is my final scripture of the night, John chapter 13, verse 34. What did he say? He said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Jesus teaching us, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. And your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. That's where it's at, isn't it? Love. Love. Those of you that are still holding out, you go, wait a minute, Dad, isn't it love and truth? It is. But just start in love. Just start in love. And you'll watch the Holy Spirit how you're going to manifest this truth. Amen? So we'll get into the rest of it next time. Father, what a great section of Scripture. Thank you for the faith of that little girl. Thank you for the faith of Elisha. And even thank you for revealing to us the faithlessness of that king. (laughs) And just how that king was like wanting to do war, but you wanted to heal. And Lord, would you just show us what you want to do on the earth and what you want to do in Aurora, what you want to do in Denver, what you want to accomplish in our lives, what you plans you have for our church. Like, like we don't want to think just what you've done in the past, as good as it is. We want to go forward. Who, who else in this city needs to be loved and cared for and served and ministered to? Who else in our state? Who else in our country? What other missionaries are we going to send out? Who are we going to encourage? Who are we going to strengthen? What pastors are going to go out and plant a church? And, and what missionaries are going to launch out full-time, God? And, and, and what families are going to be reconciled? And what, what work do you want to do on the earth today? I pray that you would help and you would strengthen and you would encourage. And even those that might be a little bent out of shape right now and because of their circumstances and are tempted like that little girl to be bitter and angry and just be a bitter person their whole life. Lord, that you would just do a work of agape in their hearts and that we would define ourselves not by the hurts and all the things that have happened to us, but that our identity is in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that we are more than conquerors, that we are always victorious, that we can humble ourselves behind um, um, the mighty hand of God and you will lift us up. And just pour out your spirit on us, God, that we might give you the credit for the work you're doing and not take it to ourselves. And that we would just rejoice. And God, I know you, you have the new believers in your hands, but you also have us to come alongside of them and love them and help them. So give us that heart, God, to walk alongside these baby Christians, no matter what their age is physically, to help them grow in your grace. <laughs> and that we would just learn the phrase, go in peace. Because there's really no peace in sin. There's no really no peace in idolatry, and there's no really really no peace in rage and anger and furiousness. And I, I just think of all those counseling sessions, Lord, where they just end in anger and pride and furiousness. And just, God, that you would pour out your spirit in a wonderful way that would soften hearts and do great work, Lord, that you would have your way with us in these last days and that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.